This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have a review of Dragon Teeth by Michael Crichton. We have Dinosaur of the Day Jobaria. And since we're pre-recording this, we don't have any news. <laughs> but we'll have plenty of news when we get back, I'm Oh yeah, sure. it always piles up in a hurry. As always, we would like to give a big thank you to our Stegosaurus patrons, Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, and Lindsay Burns. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support. And if you are a listener and want to join this growing group of amazing people, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. And I apologize. I've got a little bit of a cold, so I probably sound a little bad. Just a little stuffed up. That's all. Sabrina's going to do most of the talking. <laughs> <laughs> So jumping right into the Dragon Teeth review, we've talked about this book a few times on this podcast. We're really excited when it came out. It was published, obviously, after Michael Crichton's death. He passed away in 2008, but this manuscript, which was nearly complete uh, when it was found, was found after he passed away, and HarperCollins published it this year. Yeah, and our review is going to be full of tons of spoilers. So if you haven't read it yet and you want to read it before hearing our review, then skip ahead to our Dinosaur of the Day. Yeah, uh, the good news is, though, it's a very quick read. Yeah, and on Audible, I think the book is about seven or eight hours long. Not too long. Yeah, it didn't take long. Only took me one day to read it and then Garrett, uh, what, two days to listen? I think so. Compared to Game of Thrones, which is like a 40-hour audiobook, and I don't even know how many pages. <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> so what's interesting about Dragon Teeth is, we read at least, that there wasn't much added to this story. I don't think it was the final draft of the manuscript, but it was pretty fleshed out. I mean, it, it's definitely a page turner. There's a lot of action, really fun to read, but there are parts that felt maybe a little bit unfinished, at least to me. Yeah, I agree. It definitely felt like a Michael Crichton book. So like Sabrina saying, I don't think they really messed with it too much, but it was a little bit short. And some areas where you'd expect him to go into a lot more detail, there was a lot of stuff missing. Yeah, there's parts where like the foreshadowing felt very obvious or some of the subplots didn't feel finished and kind of just happened to be there. Yeah. <laughs> which we'll get into in a little bit. I think I read somewhere... He's been working on this for a long time. I mean, it's clear he did a lot of research. There's a long bibliography at the end of the book, but he also has these great explanations of history having to do with the Bone Wars, but also other politics and things going on at the time in America in the 1870s. 
I remember reading somewhere that he was working on this book before Jurassic Park. Yeah, I think he started writing this in the 60s or 70s. And then just his wife said somewhere that he was always working on like five or six projects. So, you know, this one just never got finished. There was always something more exciting or, you know, had more economic value to it that he never got around to finishing this one. And people even mentioned that, you know, this was probably part of the reason that he wanted to write Jurassic Park because it was about dinosaurs and he could use some of that knowledge he had gathered researching this book in a little bit more of a marketable book. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting thinking back when I was going through this book again, so we could talk about the review in depth, I saw some parallels or some mm -hmm. similarities. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we'll just jump in again. Lots of spoilers. So hope you read the book. <laughs> or you're not interested in reading it. <laughs> yeah. Either way. <laughs> so the protagonist of this book is a man named William Johnson. He's 18 years old, a student at Yale. And he ends up going out west and becoming a big part of the Bone Wars on a dare. He was born into his money, so uh, he he's a little bit spoiled. And he's got... Uh, Basically a rival. Rival, yeah. With another boy named Harold Marwin. And they end up having this big show in Yale where William Johnson says he's going out west for the summer, and it becomes a bet where they bet $1,000, which is a lot of money, because this story takes place between 1875 and 1876. Yeah, and I think he wrote, like, even for rich, you know, trust fund kids, yeah. this is a lot of money. <laughs> and it's a very public thing, and so William Johnson realizes, well, I need to find a way to actually make it out west. Yeah, and he kind of declares, I'm going with Marsh, because Marsh goes out there every summer. And that's before even checking with Marsh if he could actually yeah, come he, along. Yeah, he remembers reading something in a newspaper a while back. Marsh was looking for students to help yeah. or something like that. So this story is, it's told in kind of a biographical way almost. It's kind of like, this is the story of William Johnson between the two photographs of him. One before he goes out west and one when he returns. And it's the story about what happens in between. And it's important to note, William Johnson is a fictitious character. This is a historical fiction. There are characters in the book who were real people. For example, Cope and Marsh, obviously the Bone Wars, and Charles Sternberg, and also Wyatt Earp makes an appearance. Yeah, a couple guys out in the kind of Western mythology are in there. Yeah, it's very much a Western novel, mm -hmm. I would say. Maybe even more so than a dinosaur book. But anyway, so Williams goes to Marsh and tries to figure out a way that he can be one of the students that helps Marsh on his expedition out west. Yeah, he basically starts by saying, hey, you were looking for people in the paper. I want to be one of those people. And Marsh is like, nope, we're all done looking for people. Yeah, you're late. We had like 50 or 100 people interested and we selected like 20 of them. So why would I waste my time talking to you right now? Marsh is also this very suspicious, paranoid kind of character. Yeah. I think that conversation like happens through a small opening in a door kind of thing. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. But then William Johnson realizes that Marsh needs a photographer on his trip. And so he lies and says, I'm a photographer. Yep. I have the equipment. Let me go with you. Yeah. He like lies and says his dad taught him or something. Yeah. And so Marsh takes him on, but he won't tell 
Johnson the location of where they're going because this is part of that paranoia. He's worried that Cope will figure it out and follow him. Mm -hmm. And remember, back in this time, photography is on glass plates and I think it's called like wet colloid or something, if I'm remembering correctly. There's a lot of equipment. Yeah. It's, it's very heavy. You need a huge box with a lens cap on the end and you like take the cap off as your shutter and then you put it back on when you're done. And yeah, then there's a ton of chemicals you have to bring along and all sorts of stuff. So it's like a very cumbersome and specialized basically chemistry problem. And then on top of that, there's a kind of artistic side of it, which is setting up the shot and getting the people or the subject in frame. Yeah, there's a lot to know. And Johnson basically has weeks to learn it all. Yeah. And so he finds somebody nearby and pays him to teach him. Yeah, I think he ends up paying that guy like $100 or something, which he thinks is outrageous on top of buying all the equipment. Yeah. And he also says that this is the hardest thing he's ever done is learning <laughs> photography. Yeah. And he's really happy once he figures out the technical side of it, which is which chemicals to use and all that kind of stuff. And then the teacher goes, well, that's just the basics. Now you have to actually learn the photography part, which is, you know, <laughs> actually taking a good picture, let alone a picture that comes out when you're done processing it. Exactly. But he figures it out for the most part. And first he has to go back. He is originally from Philadelphia. I think his father is in shipping or something like that. And he has to go back to his family and make sure that he has permission. And Marsh tells him to lie about where they're going and say, I think, Colorado. So he does. And his family is not too happy about it because there's a lot going on in the West at this time, especially with the Native Americans. Uh, a lot of battles and also the gold rush and all kinds of politics and fighting and everything. Yeah. Custer's last stand was like the year before that or something, mm -hmm. which if you're not familiar, is this battle where this guy named Custer overambitiously tries to attack some Native American settlement and ends up getting totally wiped out with his whole you know, battalion or whatever the group is. I think it's like 500 people in the army all get killed in this overambitious battle. So it's not like, you know, the West hadn't been won, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> There's still battles happening all over the place. Plus, life out there is very different at the time. There's very little connection with the East Coast. Yeah, yeah you're lucky if you can get a telegram kind of thing. Yeah. So... Johnson convinces his family that it's okay. His dad actually wants his son mm -hmm. to, to do something with his life. So. He wants him to man up. Yeah, <laughs> basically. And so Johnson goes to the train station to meet Marsh and all the other students. And it's kind of interesting. The mom is really worried that it might not be safe. And when you're listening to the audiobook, you obviously don't see the two pictures mm -hmm. of, you know, what happened in between. So I wasn't sure that he was going to make it back alive. But obviously, if you start with these two pictures, you're like, well, obviously it makes it back alive because otherwise, how would there be this picture of well, him afterwards? There's that foreshadowing element because it's like later on that summer, his mother got a note that he was dead. Yeah. Which was... <laughs> So I took that from the audiobook, like, oh, I guess he dies in the middle of this. <laughs> I took that as, no, that can't be right because we've got this photograph of him in the West. <laughs> yeah. So that like kind of spoils one of the main twists that happens later, which is they think he's dead when he actually isn't because mm -hmm. he actually had all that information up front. Yeah. So that's one of those just very obvious things that <laughs> seemed a little out of place for Michael Crichton's books. Yeah, definitely. Because he usually has a little more suspense in it's his books. It's a little books. more subtle. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so they're at the train station and Marsh is looking forward to meeting everybody's families because he deliberately picked students who came from money in hopes that 
having them on the trip with the prestige and everything would encourage their families to give him money for his research. Yep. So he's very disappointed when Johnson's family does not go to the train station to see him off. And I think he finds it a little suspicious, too. He does. Well, especially because Johnson is from Philadelphia, which is where Cope is from. Mm -hmm. So he, right off the bat, he starts getting suspicious of Johnson. And they're on this train ride. They make a few stops. And over time, Marsh becomes less and less trusting of Johnson. Yeah, but Johnson isn't really realizing it, he just thinks that Marsh is kind of paranoid. He doesn't realize that it's all directed at him. <laughs> yeah. Well, Johnson had never heard of Cope before this trip, and he still doesn't really know who he is because Marsh keeps saying things like, are you working for him? And he's like, who are you talking about? Yeah. And he has all these like crazy stories about like this evil man that's stealing all these things. Beats and he's, his wife, murders his father, things yeah, like that. Any kind of defamatory thing you could possibly think of, he's yeah. saying. Paints him as a monster. Yeah. But eventually, they get to Cheyenne in Wyoming, and Marsh becomes so paranoid, he ends up ditching Johnson. Yeah, they all leave, like, super early in the morning, and he wakes up and everybody's gone. Yep, train is left, all their stuff is packed. At least they leave him his photography equipment, though. Yeah. So in Cheyenne, Johnson doesn't really know what to do, and luckily, maybe, for him, <laughs> depending how you look at it, Cope finds him and introduces himself. And Johnson sees him and he thinks, wow, this man is not a monster at all. Mm -hmm. And he ends up traveling with Cope and Cope's wife and also Charles Sternberg and maybe a few others or maybe they picked him up along the way. Yeah. And maybe because Cope already knows that he was working with Marsh, he's a little bit less paranoid because the story kind of fits together. It's a guy who used to work for Marsh and then Marsh abandoned him and Cope's like, well, of course he did. He's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, compared to Marsh, Cope seems very sane, very nice. Except there's that strong foreshadowing element where there's a line, something like, uh, but he would soon find out that he also didn't like Cope or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, just real quick, in Cheyenne, there's a subplot here that didn't really get developed and seemed kind of put in there to add to the story. Johnson meets a woman. She's a dancer. And she seeks out male companionship, probably for money. It doesn't go into any details, really. But he falls in love with her, or at least he thinks he falls in love with her. And he promises that once he gets back to Cheyenne on his way back after his trip, he's going to find her again. And we never hear about that woman again. So Yeah, I kept expecting that to come back up, but it just kind of disappears in the plot. Yeah. So that seems like one of those things that got lost in the editing process. Yes. <laughs> or was impossible to edit with the uh, author dead. Yeah, it's unclear. So Johnson joins Cope and his team, and it's a very different experience. Marsh had everything planned out. He had a lot of money, so they were traveling in relative luxury. They had a lot of guards, or I think the army at one point was helping to keep them safe um, with all the stuff going on with the Native Americans. But Cope is bootstrapping this whole trip, so it's just very different mm -hmm. experience. Marsh also, along the way, tries to sabotage Cope as many ways as he can. Like They don't know for sure that they're going to the same places, but they do end up in the same area of the U.S. for digging for their fossils. And Marsh ends up in the whatever towns or cities a little bit before Cope, and he always spreads these rumors that makes trouble for Cope. So, for example, they get to one place, and Marsh had told uh, whoever was the police that Cope was wanted for murdering his father, which wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and Cope actually, I think he ends up in jail for a little bit while he tries to prove like, hey, this is a lie. This did Mm. not happen. So at this point in the story, Marsh seems like the paranoid one that you don't want to cross. But as we know, it's it's kind of a two-sided thing in the Bone Wars. So the book is divided into parts. And that pretty much sums up part one. Just getting to the Badlands of Colorado. And Johnson getting onto Cope's team. Part two, I found this interesting. It's called The Lost World. Hmm. So I wonder if Crichton drew any of that for, you know, Jurassic Park and The Lost World. Or from the many Lost Worlds, because there's like eight movies called The Lost World. (laughs) That's true, yeah. (laughs) And books. So here we get into more of the disagreements between the frontiersmen and the Native Americans. And I think Crichton did a pretty good job of portraying the racism of the day. Yeah. And it's also complicated because some Native Americans worked for frontiersmen. Yeah. And then there's also like a whole Asian American contingent mixed Mm -hmm. in too. And they're kind of somewhere in between, like they can live in the same town. But, but they have to be in a separate area of the town. Yeah, and they're looked down on and all that kind of and stuff. And then there's some towns where they'll accept Native Americans if they're alive, but they won't let them be buried on their soil. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. And then there's the whole side of like Native Americans that are offering their services as guides to frontiersmen, but then other Native Americans don't look kindly on that. Yeah, and then there's like a whole lack of trust too. Yeah, plus there's all different kinds of tribes and some are more friendly to frontiersmen than others. Mm-hmm. So a lot going on and it kind of put the Bone Wars into a whole nother perspective for us because, I mean, we've, been, we've talked about the Bone Wars a lot and have been reading up on it a lot, but only from the dinosaur perspective. Yeah, like the scientific intellectual side. Yeah. And from that perspective, it's it's crazy when you hear things like, oh, these scientists were sabotaging each other and blowing things up and lying about Spying, each other. Spying, all that, yeah. And like possibly attempting to shoot at each other or whatever. But then when you look at it from the perspective of, oh, it's like the Wild West, Mm -hmm. then it sounds pretty tame, actually, because they never actually like killed each other and they didn't, you know, punch each other in the head or anything. Well, they might have, but. Well, yeah, (laughs) but no one was seriously injured, whereas, you know, in other parts of the Wild West kind of ethos, all these people were dying all the time. Well, there's also... They come in the summer to do their digs because that's the best time of the year to come. But then they have to hurry out because there's news that a battle's coming. Yeah. And there's like constant armies kind of moving through, you know, like different regiments to yeah. fight with different groups of Native Americans and things. And then there's the the whole gold rush aspect. People are digging for gold. And so they a lot of people assume that these scientists are mm-hmm. doing the same thing, which could cause them problems with the Native Americans, but also problems when they have their bones and they're just in these crates and nobody knows what's in the crates. They just assume it's gold. Yeah. They keep saying they're bones, but everyone thinks they're lying. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, obviously they're, you know, bones and air quotes. It's really gold or something else, some other mineral that's really valuable, but really they're just valuable to science. And then trying to transport them too. Like those old stagecoach oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> situations. You need the people with the guns. And there's no paths, nothing clearly defined. Yeah. And people are constantly getting robbed. 
So really, when you look at it under that lens, the Bone Wars don't seem that crazy. It's like, oh, well, obviously anything in that situation is going to get really heated and insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty eye-opening because I hadn't thought about that yeah. whole context before. Especially when they say like, oh, Custer's last stand was, ye- you know, basically yesterday. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's a slightly different tone than like modern times going out into the wilderness to look for some fossils yeah where you expect to run into nobody and it's pretty peaceful yeah possibly a bear (laughs) yeah that's like the worst thing that could happen (laughs) so yeah along with all this context also michael Crichton incorporates a lot of history history of the time but also history of dinosaurs so he talks about uh, you know, William Buckland and his megalosaurus and gideon mantel describing iguanodon and the whole Cuvier controversy where he didn't, he wouldn't admit it was some some dinosaur thing like mm-hmm. until later on. What's also interesting about this background is it was the railroads that were being laid across the whole country that made it possible to even dig for dinosaurs in North America. Like that's what started these bone wars, basically, because this way. If you recovered a lot of bones, you had a way to send it back east for study. Yeah, because they're all so heavy, and stagecoaches are obviously pretty unreliable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he also talks about when they they start digging and they're trying to figure out a way to transport these bones back. A lot of times, the bones, you know, they're fragile; they break easily, and they come up with this way to jacket cover the bones with boiled rice to make this gelatinous paste. I don't mm-hmm. know. If, Maybe that was true. Maybe that's how they did it. Yeah, I don't know. But it it is basically, we've heard from paleontologists how the plaster wrapping that they do is such an old technique that was invented a really long time ago. But then you think like, oh, in the in the very early days, someone had to come up with that. Yeah. And before that, they were just trying to transport these fragile things and, you know, what, sawdust in like a crate or something. Mm-hmm. And then little pieces could break off because well, they the weren't carriage, jacketing yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. And the super rough rides they were probably on. So, yeah, that was pretty cool to think about the very early development of some of these techniques everyone takes for granted nowadays. The other interesting thing to think about context-wise is science and how people viewed science back in the 1870s. And in the book, at least, a lot of the characters are wrestling with this idea of evolution and the Earth being billions of years old. Oh, yeah. That was the first time I had heard that Cope is a Quaker. And so technically, the Quakers believed in the young Earth creation, meaning that the Earth is only like 5,000 years old. And he kind of struggles a little bit with well, I know these dinosaur fossils are at least tens of millions of years old, Mm -hmm. but, you know, my faith says that the Earth is only 5,000 years old, and he kind of struggles with that, which is really interesting, because that would have been a problem for a lot of people, actually most people back then. Yeah. And it was also kind of funny, because they hadn't really nailed down the chronology for dinosaurs, at least according to this book, and they were kind of arguing with whether the fossils were 10 million years old or like 30 million years old. And like, no, that's too old. They can't be that old. <laughs> but really, you know, they're more like 100 million years old. Yeah. And because of this, Cope is depicted as this pretty open-minded character because they travel with a Native American, Little Wind, who's guiding them. And Little Wind has a different belief system. And he talks about different kinds of spirits and stuff in, in relation to these bones. Yeah. And it sounds a lot like some of the different things we hear when we talk about, you know, Inupiat words for dinosaurs or like in the Western Australian 
dinosaur mythologies and you know how it's like oh this very large animal or this large human and that's really what that bone or that footprint relates to you see that over and over again and michael Crichton did a good version of it here too he did he also portrays cope as having a bit of a temper so yeah he's open-minded but he he does beat a mormon man who kicks his crate of skulls and (laughs) talks about how that's the devil's work or something like that (laughs) cope to me, seemed a little bit like Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park in that uh, maybe not so much about the chaos, but thinking about these new ideas Hmm. of the time. At least that's kind of the vibe I got. I don't know if if there is any kind of correlation there. A little bit of like an antagonist kind of thing or? Yeah, kind of in pushing these ideas that people don't necessarily want to accept yet. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's true. So the biggest thing here, this would be the biggest spoiler, the name Dragon Teeth. Cope ends up pushing his team to stay out in the field as long as they can. They know that there's a battle coming. They know that they're going to be in danger soon. But he just has this gut feeling that he's going to find something great. And this is after they found a number of other dinosaur bones. And they do. They find what he ends up calling brontosaurus teeth, which is interesting because there's a footnote about how... So Charles Sternberg, you know, he's real... Uh, He wrote a book about his time during these bone wars, and that's where a lot of this research comes from. And he credits Cope with naming Brontosaurus, but apparently there's other sources that credit Marsh with naming Brontosaurus, so it's interesting. Just add more confusion to the Brontosaurus history. Yeah. (laughs) So they find these teeth, they call them the dragon teeth. I mean, I love Brontosaurus, I'm really glad that that's the main dinosaur in all of this, but it was a little disappointing that the cover of the book is a T-Rex. There's no T-Rex mentioned anywhere in Dragon Teeth. Yeah, I don't think there's a single one. Like, they talk about Stegosaurus a little bit, and I think maybe Triceratops. Yeah, or at least some kind of Ceratopsian, but... I don't think they ever mention a T-Rex, but the cover is literally like a cowboy on a horse on a T-Rex skull. And maybe that's a throwback to Jurassic Park or something. I think so. But still. You really expect the dragon teeth to be T-Rex teeth. Yeah, not an herbivore. (laughs) Yeah. So, that was a little misleading, but (laughs) anyway... Still glad it was Brontosaurus. So the rest of the book, about half of the book, is devoted to protecting these Brontosaurus teeth, getting it back home. Yeah. So basically, Cope takes off with some of the bones and most of the people. And then William Johnson and Little Wind and I think one other guy go on a separate trip with the Brontosaurus, those teeth and a bunch of the skeleton. Well, I think it's they couldn't carry... All of their fossils in one load. They had to make two trips. Okay. And they weren't sure if it would be safe to come back for the second trip, which Mm -hmm. included the teeth. But Johnson really wanted to go. He sensed that it was a big deal. Yeah. So they try to take them, you know, on their own. But basically everybody but Johnson gets killed. And he kind of gets stranded in Deadwood. (laughs) Yeah. Which is a really famous town just in Wild West history. And actually, most of the book reminds me more of the TV series Deadwood, which I really liked, Mm -hmm. than it does of like Jurassic Park or any sort of dinosaur thing. So I think if you read this book and you want like to see a TV show or something that kind of has that feel, I recommend watching Deadwood because that's like, (laughs) it's a really great show. And it has like some of these same characters in it, like Wyatt Earp, I think is in there. And it just has like the same feel to me as the book had while he's stuck in this town. A lot of outlaws and 
no yeah, real rules. Craziness, like weird things are super expensive because there's so little connection to, you know, the real world, basically. And there's no law. Yeah. There's no sheriff in town. There's a judge, but he's mostly a drunk, doesn't really care. And the, the decisions that they make in that city aren't respected by anybody because it's like, it's just like a self-appointed judge. It's not even a U.S. judge. Yeah, I think there's one character who uh, he murders somebody. The judge says he's innocent and he thinks that that means double jeopardy for him he can't be arrested anywhere mm-hmm. else so he goes to another town and then brags about how he murdered this man and they're like well that trial in deadwood didn't count <laughs> yeah exactly you're in jail now <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's pretty funny because they have these super archaic notions like oh if you shoot somebody in the back you know that's horrible whether mm-hmm. or not they just tried to kill you or something yeah it's just all these like really black and white or really oversimplified things that would never hold up in a real u.s trial so William Johnson ends up in Deadwood with no money. And there's no telegram, so he can't get more money from his parents. Yeah, and I also can't communicate with them. At this point, he has been separated from Cope for long enough that Cope thinks he's dead and sends the note to the parents saying, your son is dead. Yeah. What he does have, fortunately, though, is his photography equipment. And he learns that people will pay him money to take their portraits. Yeah. Especially minors, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, you strike it rich, you want a picture with all your gold kind of thing. Yeah, or even the ones who didn't strike it rich. <laughs> I guess he take all the that work to get there. Yeah. <laughs> so he needs to earn money to get out of Deadwood. It turns out Deadwood is a really hard place to leave because people will attack you from all angles on like the one road yeah. that leads you to safety. It's very isolated and covered in robbers, basically. Yeah. And William Johnson also has to be careful of his fossils because they're in these crates and people think they're gold. Mm-hmm. They think he's lying. So Yeah, so he ends up hiding them several places. He hides them under the body of the Native American guy who dies for a while. Then he hides them in, the, in his hotel room for a while. And then he hides them in the Asian part of town for a while. I guess Chinatown, basically. And yeah, he ends up basically having to sneak them out in the middle of the night eventually. Well... There's a few things that happen. One is after he's been there for a while, the army arrives and he thinks, great, this is his chance to get out safely. They tell him that he's allowed to go with them. But something happens. So in addition to being paid for portraits, he gets paid to take pictures of buildings sometimes. And he takes a picture of, I think it's the hotel that he's staying at. But the time of day happens to be when a murder is taking place Mm -hmm. and he captures it in his photo. Accidentally. He has no idea. But uh, somebody is talking to him loudly at the bar or something about this photo. And the murderer named Dick Curry hears him and thinks, oh, no, he's got this photo, this evidence against me. I need to basically make sure that that isn't used against me. Yeah. And he's this kind of known outlaw. Nobody knows exactly what he did, but they know that. He doesn't want his picture taken. He's always talking about. He doesn't want to be found. And Johnson says really loudly, like, oh, none of the pictures came out. So that guy kind of lets it go. But then Johnson decides that it's his job to testify because he wants this guy to get arrested for killing somebody. Mm -hmm. And the army leaves before that trial is going to happen. Well, there's a whole thing. The judge is drunk. He says it's not enough evidence. Then he locks up Johnson for the night for his own safety, quote unquote. But nobody lets him out until after the army has left. Yep. So now Johnson has to find another way out of Deadwood, and now Dick Curry is after him. So fortunately for Johnson, Wyatt and Morgan 
the two brothers, Earp, come to town. <laughs> and Johnson pays them for protection. Yeah, apparently Wyatt Earp went there because he thought they'd pay him to be sheriff, but then it turns out no one's really interested in having a sheriff. So then he's like, okay, I guess I'll leave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's also, this is where a woman named Emily Williams comes into the picture. She kind of comes out of nowhere, but she ends up helping Johnson and is kind of attracted to him, flirts with him. Yeah, she reminds me of the character Mrs. Garrett in Deadwood, too. <laughs> and oh, like immediately thought of that person because it was a very similar character. The TV show Deadwood, yeah. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and they're both in Deadwood. So after the trial, Curry gets really angry at Johnson. And so they decide to duel, basically. And... Johnson goes to Earp, Wyatt Earp, and asks him for advice. And he's like, well, talk your way out of it or refuse <laughs> because... It's not smart. Yeah, it's a bad a idea. Duel. He's like, how good of a shot are you? And he's like, not very good. I like haven't really shot anything ever. And so Wyatt Earp gives him some tips. And he's like, well, if you're going to do it, then, you know, take your time. Make sure you hit him in like the chest. Don't try to shoot a small target like the head and all this kind of stuff. So he does... But he only shoots him in the shoulder, and then rather than, like, finishing him off, he lets him slink away, and Curry's yelling, like, oh, yeah, I can't believe you shot me, you know, like, I'll get back at you for this. And he's got a whole gang. It's like the Curry Brothers gang or something like that. Well, backing up a bit, Johnson killed Curry's brother, shot him in the back. Oh, yeah, when they were breaking in and trying to steal his bones. Yeah. That's true. Maybe that was why they were dueling, or part of it. It was part of the reason, also because of the photograph. There yeah. were a lot of things. Yeah, so they end up leaving town the next day, and he convinces Earp to come with him, and in exchange, he's going to pay him with half of the dinosaur bones. Which he's not happy about, but he has no leverage and he needs to get yeah, out. he doesn't have any money, so that's what he goes with. And on the way, they get attacked by the Curry brothers, they actually get attacked twice, I think, in mm -hmm. the Curry Brothers gang. The second time was really cool because they kind of get stuck and a horse gets shot. So they're kind of stuck in like a river crossing or something like that. And Wyatt Earp runs off into the woods where they're getting shot at from. And the other Earp brother lays down on top of the carriage and is like shooting out with his rifle. And then meanwhile, Emily and Johnson are like, hunkered down in the carriage trying not to get hit by this gunfire it turns out that Earp he runs into the forest and he's just shooting off his gun and making these really loud yells like he's getting hit but really he's not actually shooting anybody and nobody's getting hit he's just pretending and so the whole gang flees thinking that he was shooting the other gang members it's pretty clever yeah it was pretty funny they end up reaching the next town after you know getting rid of the dead horse and everything so one of the towns they make it to, because they have to go through a few towns before they can take the train back, is Laramie. And in Laramie, they run into Charles Marsh. And Wyatt Earp ends up making a deal with Marsh to give him his half of the bones mm -hmm. in exchange for a lot of money. Obviously, Marsh is willing to pay. Yeah. I think it was like $1,000 or something. It was a lot. Oh, actually, I think it was lower at first. He negotiates well. Yeah. And the whole time, Johnson can't believe it. He's a little upset that his bones are going to end up with Marsh after all. And then Emily lets him know, like, hey, I think that uh, Wyatt Earp, this is all a trick, and he's buying you time, and you know what you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so Johnson, which was like, I, I was surprised, it wasn't that much information to go on, but Johnson takes this giant hint and replaces the bones with fake bones and they give the fake bones to marsh 
Yeah. For all the money. All the same crates, but he just kind of hides them in like rags or something and a pile of hay or something. Yeah. So that's good. And then Emily and William Johnson end up showing their feelings for each other. They kiss and she seems to be very into him as they make their way to Cheyenne, back to Cheyenne, because that's where they can catch the train. But in Cheyenne, they run into a stumbling block. William Johnson is accused of the murder of William Johnson. (laughs) Now think about, he has spent the summer in the West, and then, you know, no money, and in Deadwood and everything. He looks very different. He is a lot more tan and toned, and I think his hair has grown out. Yeah, real long hair and a big beard. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's hard to recognize him. Marsh didn't even recognize him at first when they were in Laramie until somebody said his name. So it takes a while for Johnson to clear up the matter. He's able to send a telegram to his father and tell him some facts only he would know to convince him, like, hey, I'm not dead. Mm -hmm. I'm in Cheyenne. Stop saying that I murdered William Johnson. You're (laughs) causing a lot of problems for me. Yeah. I think he was about to get executed, too, for murdering and impersonating it. Uh, William Johnson. Oh, yeah, I don't remember the execution part. So the matter gets cleared up, but before he has a chance to explain to Emily, she decides to move on. She thinks he's a loser. She wants nothing more to do with him, which is pretty fast. Yeah. Considering all they've been through. And she runs into a bunch of people that know her by a different name, too. And so he's wondering, like, what's her real name? Like, what is this woman's deal? She's obviously lying to somebody. It turns out her name is Miranda... Lapfin, at least according to this man she runs into, and that she's a lobbyist for railroads. <laughs> we have no idea what her backstory is. We don't know why she lied. That's the end of it. Yeah. And that's just one of those other subplots that it's like, eh, you could, I wish that was flushed out a little more. Yeah. We, it would be nice to know a little bit more about which side was true or like, you know, kind of how that ended up what happening. What was she going for? Was she just, was she trying to get to the bones? I don't know. Yeah, you know very little about her motivation. Because in the beginning, it was like, oh, she just kind of likes this guy. And she's just, you know, a regular woman. And then it's like, oh, she's a high power lobbyist. Yeah. And then she just kind of disappears out of the story. Yeah. <laughs> very interesting. So, and then that's that. And Johnson doesn't seem terribly heartbroken. And he makes it home to Philadelphia. Yeah, he becomes very hardened, but it seems like the hardening happens like the moment he gets to Cheyenne and Laramie. Mm -hmm. Up until that point, he's pretty like soft and scared and stuff. But then it's just like all of a sudden he's like super tough. It would have been nice if there was a little bit more of a transition there. It was kind of weird how abrupt Uh, it was. I think there was a transition like when he was in this duel. Yeah, a little bit. But even then, he was, like, super scared. Yeah. And afterwards, he was still scared. (laughs) Yeah. It was, in his credit, it's a scary situation. (laughs) Yeah, true. And then it was one of those things, too, where he was saying, like, well, for Deadwood, he wasn't that tough. But compared to regular people in these eastern cities, Mm -hmm. you know, he's super tough. (laughs) Exactly. So once in Philadelphia, he delivers Cope his bones. Obviously, Cope is very excited. And then he goes home to his family. And then he ends up back in school where he goes up to Marlin and tells him, you owe me my $1,000. Yeah. 
And Marlon says, you weren't with Marsh. I talked to him and he said you weren't with him. Yeah. And he said, the bet wasn't $1,000 to go with Marsh. The bet was $1,000 that I went out west this summer. Well, and Marlon says, what, did you kill somebody while you were out there? And he says, yes. And that seems to. <laughs> and he's wearing his full like cowboy regalia. Yep. With he... the big beard. And... <laughs> yeah. He's like, he wasn't above, you know, going in and really strutting his stuff in the in the common hall or whatever. And he basically throws the guy on the table or something and says, like, you're going to give me my thousand dollars. I'm going to kill you or something. And he gets it. And then he gives it to him. Yeah. And then after that, he pays a visit to Marsh and tells him, hey, Cope has those bones. Yep. (laughs) And that's basically the end of the story. Yeah. There's a postscript about the real people, Cope, Sternberg, Marsh and Earp with a little information about them. And also the books that Sternberg ended up writing. And Sternberg eventually stopped working for Cope and became known, him and his sons, as fossil collectors. And we actually, we mentioned Sternberg a lot on this show. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of the preeminent actual fieldwork guys from the late 1800s and early 1900s. Yeah. So overall, a pretty quick read, pretty fast-paced, a lot of good action scenes. There's a few things that would be nice to be fleshed out more, but I was impressed with the amount of research that Crichton obviously did for this book. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the combination of little tidbits about dinosaurs, like how they were figuring out how to wrap these bones in plaster and how nobody else understood why they'd be valuable, Mm -hmm. combined with the whole Western aspect. Yeah, so I definitely recommend reading it. It's very good. And I think this book got picked up by a network to be turned into a TV show. Somebody at least bought the rights, but I haven't been able to find out if they're actually going to make it or not. Yeah. It would be cool. I could see this being very cinematic. Yeah. And you could definitely turn it into more than one season. It'd be kind of fun to play it out in multiple areas because it's not like all this happened in one summer. There was a lot of bone warring happening for years and years. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of years of stuff that happened condensed into one summer for this story. Yeah. That was one of the things Michael Crichton mentioned was that he kind of condensed a few of the things that happened to be all at once just to, you know, add to the excitement. (laughs) (laughs) But I was generally impressed with all the details that Michael Crichton included about dinosaurs and how accurate everything was. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the characterization of Cope and Marsh was probably pretty accurate, too. They, he did make them pretty crazy. And, you know, they made Marsh a little bit crazier than Cope. But I guess, you know, you kind of have to have one villain. And depending on the perspective, most people probably thought one of them was worse than the other. Because whichever one you're working with is going to seem better. Yeah, if you believe that Cope murdered his father. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Jobaria, which was a request from Lindsay via Facebook, so thank you. It was a sauropod that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Niger, Africa. The type species is Jobaria tigwidensis, and it's named after Jobar, an African mythical giant beast. Some Tuaregs, semi-nomadic people from the area, believe that Jobaria's fossils were Jobar's bones. They thought this because its exposed bones were in plain view. The species name, Tigwidensis, refers to the cliff of Tigwidi, where the fossils were found. It was named by Paul Serino and others in 1999. Paul Serino had led a four-month expedition back in 1997 and found a mass death site in the Turian Formation of Niger. Multiple specimens were found. Serino and his team reconstructed two, one that was about 60 feet, an adult, and a 30-foot-long juvenile. Over 95% of Jobaria's skeleton is preserved. It's one of the most complete sauropods. So again, it's about 60 feet or 18 meters long, and it weighed about 22 tons. It was originally thought to live in the early Cretaceous, but the sediments where it was found were reinterpreted to be from the Middle Jurassic. It's a primitive sauropod. It had a simple backbone and tail compared to older North American sauropods like Diplodocus and Apatosaurus, which had complex vertebrae and whiplash tails. Jobaria is an example of a dinosaur that didn't change much over millions of years, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. Some have classified it as a primitive macronarian, sauropods that were tall, like Camarasaurus and Brachiosaurus, but that's not for certain. It had a relatively short but flexible neck, 12 vertebrae, and it had spoon-shaped teeth. It could nip at smaller branches of trees. It may have been able to rear up on its hind legs based on Serino's comparison of the ratios of its humerus and femur circumferences with modern elephants. The weight distribution suggests its weight was supported by its rear limbs, like an elephant's, and elephants can rear up. So if it reared up, it could reach higher vegetation. It lived in the same time and place as the carnivore Afrovenator, which had long arms and could grab onto prey while biting into it. So maybe juvenile and subadults were that prey. And our fun fact of the day is about one of the 
clays that you encounter a lot when you're digging in areas like where dragon teeth takes place. So while we were in the two medicine formation, they made a joke about bentonite saying that there's two pound bentonite and five pound bentonite and eight pound bentonite. And that's the amount of bentonite that gets stuck to your boot while you're walking in it (laughs) (laughs) because it can be, you know, stickier depending on how much water there is in it. And bentonite is formed from volcanic ash. So if there's any volcanoes around where the dinosaurs died, then you get all this bentonite clay around them, which is nasty. Uh, Technically, bentonite is a type of absorbent aluminum phyllosilicate clay. And as the absorbent part of it implies, it absorbs a lot of moisture. It can come in a variety of different forms with potassium, sodium, calcium, or aluminum making up the majority of the compound, but they all have this clay, super sticky, and (laughs) very absorbent property, which is one of the reasons why doing paleontology is really best done in the summer and not when it's raining, because things can turn into this kind of super sticky, messy muck. And on top of that, you may have encountered bentonite in your day-to-day activities because it's one of the main ingredients in a lot of cat litter because it's nice and absorbent. So there you go. If you've ever changed a kitty litter box, you know a little bit about what it's like to be a paleontologist. Who knew? Yep. And that wraps up this episode of I Know a Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you would like to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I know dino. Thanks again, and until next time. D-